Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. We're going to start off today with a recipe for pesto potato salad with green beans. Mmm. If you think my slaw affliction is bad, let me introduce you to my potato salad habit. There's that everything but the kitchen sink version with its pickles and onions and vinegar and mayo and mustard and celery and then hard-boiled eggs, as if there were a risk of potato salad monotony. Then there's the stepped-up dilled version where you start by making your own cucumber pickles the night before and then finish it with radishes. It's heaven in a Central European bowl. Oh, and now there's this pesto too. Just perfect for the mayophobic out there. And look, it has green beans. It must be healthy. This recipe comes courtesy of my green tomato and okra frying friend, Ang, who says it's her go-to favorite. But what captivated me about it was the play on that Ligurian pasta dish called Trophy with Potatoes, pesto, and green beans that several readers note uh, when I made a riff on it a couple of months ago. I played around with it a little, deconstructing the pesto so the toasted pine nuts became a crunchy garnish and finishing it with wide flakes of Parmesan. It was delicious and summery, and my only regret was not taking any leftovers home so that I could eat it today for lunch. Here's the recipe pesto potato salad with green beans. Adapted so wildly from this recipe that they're no longer on speaking terms. <laughs> you can see that link at smittenkitchen.com. Now, I'm going to have to insist that you make your own pesto. Okay, I can't insist, but I do highly recommend it. Even the best store-bought stuff lacks the flavor wallop of making your own. They may look green, but turn out to be mostly oil and with basil inching its way towards green markets, it's more delicious than ever to make your own. Brightening the flavor with vinegar and a good helping of salt and pepper, keep this from blandum, a critique of many pesto potato salads, and the green beans provide the perfect antidote to those carb-phobic types. This serves 10. You'll need 4 pounds of small Yukon Gold or Redskin potatoes, quartered, one pound of green beans cut into one-inch segments, one to two small garlic cloves peeled, two bunches of basil, about one ounce each, one quarter to one-half cup of olive oil, six tablespoons or more to taste of mild vinegar, such as champagne, white wine, or white balsamic, one quarter cup of chopped green onions, scallions, one-half cup of pine nuts, toasted, Parmesan cheese to taste, and salt and freshly ground black pepper. Cook potatoes in a large pot of boiled salted water until just tender, about 10 minutes. Add beans and then cook 4 minutes longer. Drain well and let cool, then transfer potatoes and beans to a large bowl. Meanwhile, discard the stems from the basil and wash and dry the leaves. Puree them with a food processor with garlic, drizzling in enough olive oil that it gets saucy. Season the pesto with salt and pepper. Alternatively, you can swap out this step with one cup of prepared pesto, but seriously, I think you will be missing out. 
Toss the beans and potatoes with a pesto. Stir in vinegar, green onions, pine nuts, and season with salt, pepper, and or additional vinegar to taste. And finally, shave some wide flecks of Parmesan over the salad with a vegetable peeler. Serve immediately or make this up to two hours in advance. It can be stored at room temperature. Next, we're going to go for a recipe for everyday yellow dal, D-A-L. I spent the summer in Israel when I was 15 years old. And while I know I did all of the expected stuff, day trips, stays at hostels and kibbutz, the big cities and the desert, one of the things that stands out most clearly in my memory is something sort of random. The way that the Israeli kids dressed on hot days. Black jeans and often long sleeve shirts. I'd look at them so covered, so dark, and I'd want to scream. Don't you know how hot it is out here? I'm melting in my tevas and tank top, and there you are wrapped up as tight as you can in winter clothes. Clearly, this penchant for melodrama isn't a recent phenomenon. I feel the same way on days like we've had this last week, when the air is so oppressively thick and stagnant. Seriously, I think the breath I left on our front step last night grieved me here this morning. And I see people, probably dressed for important jobs in aggressively air-conditioned offices, in these woolen suit layers and shoes with covered toes and sleeves. All right, fine, I'm talking about Alex. And I want to melt for them at the thought of having to walk more than a block in such a get-up. My Eastern European jeans are inconsolable in this swelter. Thus, if you need us, we'll be over in the corner hugging it out with the AC once this weather stops being such a brat. And what to eat? If common sense demands cold food, fresh fruit, raw vegetables, then why am I craving Indian food? All jokes about my lack of sense aside, why do I only want thick, spicy curries? How can I crave dal when it's 95 immobile, rain-longing degrees out? But maybe this has more to do with the denim-clad Israeli kids than I think. We all handle the heat differently, and they chose to cover their skin rather than expose it to the sun's teeth. I had a Vietnamese friend in college that used to drag me out, McLean, Virginia, on hot days for some pho, which, along with a soothing sweetened iced coffee, he considered the only proper cure for heat exhaustion. And I have to admit, it worked like a charm. If any culture has down what to eat when it's hotter than a monkey's rear end outside... I say this theoretically, of course. It's got to be India. Seriously, do not knock it until you try it. Despite the fact that you're actually cooking with heat when there's more than enough to go around, then there's something immensely satisfying about eating spicy, wholesome food when all the ice cubes in the world aren't cutting it. I grabbed these recipes from a San Francisco Chronicle about pairing wine with Indian food a few weeks ago, And so unlike me, I tried them without giving any thought to whether or not they'd work out. My leap of faith was duly rewarded, as the everyday yellow doll is going right into the recipe folder next to the red split lentils and cauliflower and potatoes. The black-eyed peas, which I was most dubious about, as I don't really dig coconut milk outside the realm of dessert, were also delicious despite my nagging feeling that might not actually like these value these valued vaulted peas. And the salad slaw really is exactly what's been missing from my Indian recipe battery. Something crunchy, raw, and complimentary to these hearty dishes. 
It's kind of a gateway drug to summer dolls and refreshing in a way that my lunch of cold salad and raw fruit never is. So don't say that I didn't warn you. Here it is, everyday yellow doll for all kinds of weather. Serves four generously. Time, one hour plus soaking time. Source, adapted from Rudakahate via sfgate.com. So you need for this one cup of yellow split peas soaked in cold water for one hour. One large tomato, that's about eight ounces, cut into eight wedges. One quarter cup of canola oil, one half teaspoon of cumin seeds, one medium red onion, finely chopped, that's about one and a half cups, five large garlic cloves, thinly sliced, one teaspoon of coriander seeds, finely ground, three quarters teaspoon of ground turmeric, one half teaspoon of cayenne. I used one quarter and I thought it was plenty, although I just may be, I don't know. <laughs> not like spice that much, but one quarter to one half teaspoon of cayenne. You'll need one quarter cup of minced cilantro leaves. I personally abhor cilantro and I always replace it with flat leaf parsley. But if your family likes cilantro, go cilantro. One tablespoon of unsalted butter and one teaspoon of salt. Drain the doll of the split peas and place in a large saucepan. Add the tomato and three cups of water and bring it to a boil. Reduce the heat to a simmer. Cover and cook until the peas are tender, 45 minutes to one hour, and then pick out any tomato skins and then whisk the doll to emulsify it. Keep warm over very low heat. Then you're gonna heat the oil in a medium skillet over high heat, and when the oil begins to smoke, add the cumin seeds covering the pan with a lid or a splatter screen. After the seeds have stopped sputtering, add the onion and saute over medium heat. About three minutes later, add the garlic and saute until most of the onion has turned dark brown, about five minutes altogether. Add the coriander, turmeric, and cayenne. Stir and pour the mixture over the doll. Add the cilantro, butter, and salt to the doll and simmer for another five minutes and then serve hot. So this is the recipe for tangy shredded cabbage salad. This serves four and it takes 20 minutes. And this is adapted from Ruta Kahate via sfgate.com. Um, you're gonna need for this two cups of tightly packed shredded green cabbage. You can use the large holes of a grater. One small serrano chili, seeded and minced two tablespoons of fresh lemon juice or more as needed, one quarter to a half teaspoon of fine sea or table salt, one half teaspoon sugar, one tablespoon of canola oil, and one half teaspoon of mustard seeds. In a medium bowl, you're gonna to toss together the cabbage, chili, lemon juice, salt, and sugar. Taste and adjust the seasoning. You're looking for a well-balanced sweet and sour taste. You're gonna heat the oil in a small skillet or butter warmer over high heat. And when the oil begins to smoke, add the mustard seeds covering the pan with a lid or splatter screen. When the seeds um, start popping, immediately pour the oil over the cabbage salad and toss well. Let the salad sit for at least 15 minutes before serving to allow the flavors to blossom. 
You can serve this cold or at room temperature. So interestingly enough, we are heading on with one other small recipe. I think these can all be eaten together for black-eyed peas in a spicy Goan curry. This serves four to six. You'll need one cup of dried black peas or two 15-ounce cans drained, two tablespoons of canola oil, one small yellow onion minced, that's about a cup, one teaspoon coriander seeds, finely ground, one half teaspoon of finely grated garlic, about one large clove, one half teaspoon of finely grated ginger, about a one inch piece, one half teaspoon of ground turmeric, one half teaspoon of cayenne, and again, I, I always start with half of the suggested cayenne and then decide if it needs more. And mine did not, so I went for a quarter teaspoon of this one also. You'll need one half teaspoon of cumin seeds, finely ground, one quarter cup of minced tomato, it's about one small tomato, two cups or one cup if you're using canned peas, uh, so two cups of hot water, one half teaspoon salt or to taste if you're using canned peas, one half teaspoon sugar, one cup of canned coconut milk, two tablespoons of minced cilantro leaves, one tablespoon of lemon juice. If you're using dried black-eyed peas, you're gonna rinse and soak them in enough water to cover for six to eight hours, and then you drain. In a large saucepan, heat the oil over medium-low heat and saute the onion until it turns brown, about eight minutes. Add the coriander, garlic, ginger, turmeric, cayenne, and cumin, and stir for two minutes. Add the tomato and stir over low heat until it disintegrates. Add the peas and mix well, and then pour in the hot water if you're using. Add the salt and sugar and bring to a boil. Turn the heat down to low, cover, and simmer until the peas are cooked through about 20 minutes. If you're using canned peas, you only simmer for about 10 minutes. It's essential to simmer the canned peas too so that all the flavors blend better. Then you're gonna stir in the coconut milk and simmer uncovered for another eight to 10 minutes, again, allowing the flavors to come together. Add the cilantro and lemon juice, simmer for one minute more, remove from heat and serve hot. That sounds like a lovely, wonderful dinner. Speaking also of lovely and wonderful, this is just a recipe for macaroni and cheese. You know, I try to throw a lot of healthy recipes out there or things that sound really interesting, but sometimes you just gotta get some good old creamy mac and cheese. This one from Martha Stewart. Now, please be warned, this makes a ton of mac and cheese. Not interested in going in on all mac all the time diet this week, but I'm wishing to try the recipe at last. I halved it, and guess what? We still had three dinners worth of mac and cheese, or full six servings, which is, of course, what the recipe said it would make if halved, but I was in denial. This is particularly delicious with a big crunchy salad and a steamed vegetable like green beans or broccoli. This serves 12. You'll need eight tablespoons or one stick of unsalted butter, plus more for the casserole. Six slices of white bread, crusts removed, torn into one quarter to half inch pieces. Five and a half cups milk, one half cup of all-purpose flour, two teaspoons of coarse salt, plus more for water. One quarter teaspoon of ground nutmeg, one quarter teaspoon of freshly ground pepper. 
one quarter teaspoon of cayenne pepper, four and a half cups, which is about 18 ounces of grated sharp white cheddar cheese, two cups or about eight ounces of grated gruyere or one and a quarter cups, about five ounces of grated pecorino romano cheese, one pound of elbow macaroni. So first you're going to preheat your oven to 375 degrees. Butter a three-quart casserole dish and set aside. Place the bread in a medium bowl and in a small saucepan over medium heat, melt two tablespoons of butter. Pour the melted butter into the bowl with the bread and toss and then set the breadcrumbs aside. Next you're going to warm the milk in a medium saucepan over medium heat and melt the remaining six tablespoons of butter in a high-sided skillet over medium heat. When the butter bubbles, add the flour. Cook, stirring one minute. While you're whisking, slowly pour in the hot milk a little at a time to keep the mixture smooth. Continue cooking, whisking constantly until the mixture bubbles and becomes thick, about eight to 12 minutes. Remove the pan from the heat, Stir in the salt, nutmeg, black pepper, cayenne pepper, three cups of cheddar cheese, and one and a half cups of gruyere, or one cup of pecorino. Again, it's an or. Set the cheese sauce aside. I must say these flavorings and spices sound really interesting and good. Next, you're going to cover a large pot pot of salted water and bring to a boil. Cook the macaroni until the outside of the pasta is cooked and the inside is underdone. It'll take about two to three minutes. Then transfer the macaroni to a colander. Rinse under cold running water and drain well. Stir the macaroni into the reserved cheese sauce. Pour the mixture into the prepared dish. Sprinkle the remaining one and a half cups of cheddar cheese, one half cup of gruyere, or a quarter cup of pecorino romano and the breadcrumbs over the top. Bake until golden brown, about 30 minutes. Now we needed a little bit more time to get it brown, but your oven may vary. And then transfer the dish to a wire rack for five minutes and serve. This sounds like the cheesiest macaroni and cheese that I've ever heard of. (laughs) Our next recipe is gonna be for marbled banana bread. Less than a week after I deliver the ostensibly completed manuscript for my second cookbook, I received an email from someone who was looking for a recipe for a chocolate vanilla marble cake like the one her grandmother had made, one that had great texture that wasn't too sweet. She said that no recipe she tried had achieved this, and could I help? I became obsessed. I loved the idea, and I fiddled until I came up with a marble cake I loved, moist, deeply chocolatey in the dark swirls, but no throwaway blandness in the light ones. And then I added it to the book. Editors love this, by the way, almost as much as mine loved the 10 recipes I swapped in December and the three in January and the introduction that I didn't write until February. Seriously, just let me know if you ever want to write that. How not to write a book book. What a tease, however, that this isn't that marble cake. That one is really good, though. I thought I'd hand off it off to my friends and family, basically block who blockaded the door. Um, But what I wanted to tell you today is what happened after I figured out how I wanted to marble the cake, which is that I found it so much fun, I couldn't stop. I started marbling everything. Marbled chocolate graham crackers, 
marbled gingerbread bars. And then one day I even made marbled banana bread and I shared it on Instagram stories. And I don't think I have ever received so many requests for a recipe. And my typically snail-like pace of output, this brings me up to today. Banana bread is perfect fall back-to-school food anyway, so we can pretend that I meant to do that. Anyway, I know that for a fact that all our weekends will be better with this in it. So here's a recipe for marbled banana bread. It looks beautiful, by the way. Lots of swirls of the dark and the light. This serves 8 to 10. It takes 45 minutes. You'll need three large, very ripe bananas, one half cup of unsalted butter, melted, three quarters cup of light brown sugar, one large egg, one teaspoon of vanilla extract, one teaspoon of baking soda, one quarter teaspoon of table or fine sea salt, one cup plus one quarter cup of all-purpose flour, one half teaspoon of ground cinnamon, one quarter cup of dark cocoa powder, I use dutched, but any kind should work, and sifted if it's lumpy, and three quarters a cup of chocolate chips. Heat your oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit, butter a 9 by 5 inch loaf pan, or coat it with a nonstick baking spray. Melt the butter in the bottom of a large bowl in the microwave, mash the bananas right into it until mostly smooth, and then whisk in the brown sugar, egg, vanilla, baking soda, and salt until thoroughly combined. Add one cup of the flour, stirring just until it disappears. Pour half of the batter into a second bowl. You can eyeball it, it's fine. Or you know that my uh, better halves were roughly 365 grams each, but weights will vary with banana sizes. Into one bowl, stir the remaining one quarter cup of flour and ground cinnamon. And then into the other bowl, stir in the cacao powder and chocolate chips. Dollop batters in large, and they can so see the pictures for an idea of size. So I'd say like, um, you know, it looks like a like blob on the left, different color blob in the middle, and the darker color blob again on the right, or vice versa. Um so dollop those dollop those batters in large alternating spoonfuls into the bottom of prepared loaf pan, attempting to checkerboard the rest in, roughly meaning that you'll drop a chocolate batter dollop on top of a chocolate-free one, and vice versa until both batters are used up. Then you use a butter knife or a small offset spatula to make a few figure eights through the batters, just marbling them together. But just say little two to three figure eights any more and the swirls may not look distinct when you cut the cake so don't stir it too much then you bake 55 to 65 minutes until a tester or toothpick inserted into the center of the cake comes out batter free a melted chocolate chip smear is expected however cool in the pan for 10 minutes then run a knife around the edge and invert it out into a cooling rack serve warm or at room temperature as far as doing a head the banana bread will keep for up to four days at room temperature, and I keep mine wrapped in foil. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.